This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 169. Greetings, everyone. And for those of you in the U.S., happy Thanksgiving. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Laster, and I'm here to share my fresh new fiction with you. You can find more of my work at chrislaster.org and metamorecity.com. But for now, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 27 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Metamore City Police Detective Catherine Catane is closing in on her quarry. After a string of murder kidnappings that stretched all across the city, Kate and her partner Lizzie got a lucky break when the latest victim turned up in Soulshore. The body had not yet been disturbed, so Kate had the opportunity to perform an augury to find out how the woman had died. In the resulting vision, they saw the face of one of the kidnappers, a dark-haired young man with a closely trimmed goatee. Lizzie recognized him as Nevin Ardlito, a former associate of hers at the elite Chisholm University. The augury is not admissible as evidence, so Kate and Lizzie hurried over to Nevin's house, where they took DNA swabs from his door and mailbox and stole a few bags of garbage out of his trash bins. If Nevin's DNA turns up on the victim's body, the crime lab should be able to make a positive ID. Now the detectives are headed back to Justice Tower to file their evidence and request a warrant for Nevin's house. Kate has also been dealing with a more personal mystery, a strange little skunk morph who calls himself Murakir. The man first appeared to Kate in a dream. A soft, unearthly voice had been calling her name, beckoning to her from inside a locked prison cell. Murakir shouted at Kate to not open the door, then pushed her back into wakefulness. Soon Kate encountered the man in person. He was dirty, disheveled, and stinking, and he told Kate that they'd been sucked into the same dream. Murakir has been hearing that voice in the prison, off and on, for most of his life. It's coming from another plane of reality, one that sits close to the world of dreams. He's not sure what the voice is exactly, but he knows it has to stay locked up. Kate asked him to explain further, but the skunk seemed to grow suddenly wary, as if someone were watching him. He ran off, promising to get in touch soon. And in the meantime, he says, do not follow the voice. Meanwhile, police psychologist Jared Tamlin has been added to the ranks of the abducted. After being ambushed and drugged in the Precinct 9 parking garage, Jared awoke in a darkened underground cell. His only company was Silas Kenning, Callie Linder's former mentor, who serves as the middleman and arbiter between the Runners Guild and their clients. Silas was taken from his fortress-like home and office after digging too deeply into the operations of the White, a new criminal organization that wants to destroy the vampire prince, Malcolm Ardvalos. Jared also was kidnapped after meddling in other people's business. 
specifically when he tried to stop the Special Investigations Division from putting Kate Katane back on active duty. Jared is sure that Kate isn't a dirty cop, but Silas points out that people don't go dirty all at once. It's something you slide into, a little at a time, until you don't know who you were anymore. And if the people behind the kidnappings want Jared out of the picture, one thing seems certain. Somebody thinks they can use Kate, or turn her to their own purposes. Sometime later, a group of cloaked and hooded figures arrived at the door to Jared's cell. They told him to come with them, and said they won't hurt him unless he refuses to cooperate. Jared knows he'll never get free if he stays in his cell, so he agrees to play along, for now. They open his cell, and Jared follows the hooded figures down a long, dark tunnel. The Lost and the Least A Novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 27 Most of the police at Justice Tower had already gone home for the day when Kate and Lizzie touched down at the SID landing pads. The two women took the express lift down to the main floor and parted ways in the lobby. Lizzie to the district attorney's office, Kate to the crime labs. The Forensic Investigation Division housed its primary CSI office in Justice Tower, a few stories below SID. All the forensic equipment that Morgan lusted after, but was too expensive or specialized to be doled out to the local squad offices, found a home here at headquarters. The precinct houses could call on CSI for assistance, but because its time was charged to their operating budgets, the precinct captains made use of them only sparingly. SID, of course, had no such fiscal concerns. Kate dropped off her bag of garbage with the analysts, who oddly did not seem either surprised or dismayed at this. She explained their suspicions about Nevinard Lido and the connection to the body at the docks. The boffins sent her on her way with a receipt and a promise to contact her as soon as they had anything. Kate had just left the CSI office and was walking across a high, open lobby when she caught a whiff of a familiar scent. She looked around at the scattered people milling past, until her eyes fell on a theriomorph sweeping the floors. He wore blue denim overalls and well-worn sneakers, and his fur was a drab, medium brown that gave few clues to his species. But Kate could sense the weave of illusion magic around him a spell so tight and artful that even she couldn't see past it. Even the man's eye patch was hidden from view. The faint, mephitic stench that hung in the air, however, was the only clue she needed. She walked over to stand near him, then took out her phone and pretended to look at it. "'You're looking a lot better than the last time I saw you,' she said. "'Do you work here now, or is this a temporary thing?' The man who had introduced himself as Murak here chuckled softly. When you get to be my age, you realize they're all temporary things. Kate conceded this with a tilt of her head. Your, uh, aroma is giving you away. I have an amulet for that, Murray said. It needs recharging. I've had more pressing concerns. Like stalking me? Kate looked up at the balconies lining the plaza. No one seemed to be looking in their direction. 
Did internal affairs send you? Murray snorted. Internal affairs. They've done a lovely job, haven't they? Can't even keep Talia's little boy from getting his claws into the department. Talia's little boy? Kate nearly choked. You'd better not let Malcolm hear you call him that. Murray scoffed even louder at that than he had for internal affairs. He's a mosquito. I'm after larger prey. You should be too. Kate suppressed a sigh. The old skunk morph was clearly living in a world of his own devising, if he thought public enemy number one was unworthy of serious consideration. Well, good luck with that, she said, putting away her phone. Excuse me, I've got work to do. She started walking toward the nearest lift. Miss Katane. Kate stopped and turned around, putting her hands on her hips. So, the crazy man knew who she was. Great. Look, what do you want? If you've got something to say to me, just say it. Murray cast a furtive glance up at the balconies. I want to, he said. I'm sorry it's taking me so long. I'm still assessing the situation. He went back to pushing the broom. Don't let them distract you, detective. That's what they do. Wheels within wheels. Deception piled on deception. They plant the truth inside a lie, which they conceal inside an unrelated truth. This isn't the first time they've done it. Everything repeats itself. They who? Kate demanded. What the hell are you talking about? Murray glared up at her, anger mixing with obvious fear. Not here, he hissed. Patience, Miss Katane, patience. With an exasperated sigh, Kate turned her back on the skunk. Yeah, that never was my strong suit. Goodbye. She walked the rest of the way to the lift, and he didn't try to stop her again. When she turned around in the lift car and the glass doors slid shut, the man was nowhere to be seen. The hooded figures led Jared through a confusing network of tunnels, all of them dark, dirty, and reeking of mildew. It was hard to tell what their purpose had been whenever they were built. Given the differences in size, building materials, and architectural styles, Jared supposed that he might be looking at several centuries of underground construction, one layer built atop another, like those ancient cities in the Southlands. They passed through holes in the rock that looked like they had been made recently, and climbed makeshift staircases built from the discarded masonry of layers above or below them. Jared had no idea how deep they were, what direction they were facing, or even what part of the city they were in, though the presence of the river said that they must be on the valley's western side. In any case, escaping on his own did not seem a likely prospect, at least not yet. After some time, they came to a larger chamber, about ten meters wide and twenty long, with a barrel-vaulted ceiling like a wine cellar. Several small electric lanterns hung from hooks around the perimeter of the room, filling it with a soft yellow glow. In the center of the room was a rectangular platform, roughly a meter wide, a meter high, and two meters long. It was covered with a black tablecloth, in the center of which was a silvery-white symbol that Jared had never seen before. It was a large upside-down U, like a horseshoe or a rounded arch, and inside the curve of the arch was a death's head, a stylized skull without the mandible. Above the skull, near the peak of the arch, was an old-fashioned key, 
with a large ring at one end and two fat teeth at the other. Below the arch and the skull was a long, straight chain, which bound the two ends of the yew together and enclosed the skull within its borders. It had the look of a very old symbol, not something designed by modern graphic artists to appeal to contemporary sensibilities, but something medieval, or even older. It was simple enough to be drawn by hand, but this example had been embroidered into the tablecloth with the utmost care. Yet the tablecloth itself seemed to be new, or at least not an antique. The hooded figures ushered Jared into the room and had him stand in front of the table, facing the skull. The figures formed a tight ring around Jared, close enough to grab him if he tried to run. Their spokesman crossed to the opposite side of the table and faced Jared from across the symbol. The spokesman pulled back his hood, revealing a gaunt face with bushy black hair and eyebrows and a short, pointed beard. His dark eyes glittered as they peered at Jared. Jared looked back, studying the man with professional detachment, waiting. Silence stretched between them. There is something strange about you, the cloaked man said at last. Jared couldn't help it. His lips bent into a smirk. Should I explain the concept of projection to you? The man snorted, and Jared thought he saw a flash of something like respect in the man's eyes. You don't frighten easily. Oh, was I supposed to be frightened? Jared asked blandly. He gestured at the skull and arch symbol between them. I'll admit I find your taste in interior decorating to be appalling, but I try not to pass judgment. The hooded figures around Jared reached out and grabbed him, holding tightly to his arms and legs. Jared fought to pull away, but they held on tightly, locking his arms to hold him in place. Funny man. The cloaked man reached into his robes and pulled out a dagger. The metal was enameled black and had several sinister-looking runes engraved on it and inlaid with red. The man turned it this way and that, as if testing its balance. You have no fear of death, then? Jared gritted his teeth and raised his chin in defiance. Death did its worst to me a long time ago. The man seemed pleased by this answer. He reached down behind the table and brought up an earthenware jar, about three decimeters tall, glazed in black and covered with more arcane markings. He set it in the middle of the silver symbol, directly atop the skull, then gestured to his companions. They bent, pulled, and manhandled Jared's body until his arm was stretched out over the mouth of the jar. The spokesman pressed his knife against Jared's skin and drew it downward, across the wrist, not along the length of the vein. The blade was so sharp that Jared barely felt the cut, but then dark blood oozed up out of the wound and ran dribbling down into the jar. The arcane markings flared into light as the blood entered it, changing in seconds from orange to yellow and finally to white. An audible intake of breath ran through the group as the hooded figures stared at the fiery symbols. The spokesman lowered the knife and stared at Jared, his dark eyes full of something like wonder. After a moment, he shook himself, then turned to his companions. Clean that wound and bind it, he snapped. Quickly, 
We can't risk an infection. Not now. And take full security measures. This man is police. Go! Go! Jared found himself being half-dragged, half-carried out of the room, down yet another hallway, and into another chamber. This one had been converted into a kind of makeshift surgical theater, with heavy plastic sheeting covering the floors and walls. A stainless steel operating table sat in the middle of the room, surrounded by small metal carts, loaded with various medical supplies. Before Jared could even get a word out, the figures had lifted him bodily onto the operating table. "'What are you—' he demanded, but they were already securing him to the table, tying him down with heavy straps. Jared tried to fight them, but two of the largest men put the full force of their weight on him, pinning him down as the others tightened the restraints. After that, they stepped back and went to the carts, each one tending to their own task without saying a word. One brought a basin of water, a sponge, and a bottle of rubbing alcohol, and began cleaning and disinfecting the cut. When that was done, another stepped forward and sealed the wound, using butterfly bandages and surgical glue. A third figure, inexplicably, cut off Jared's hair, collecting it in a metal garbage can, while a fourth took a pair of round-ended scissors and began meticulously cutting Jared's clothes off of his body. Jared cursed at them, demanded to be released, even begged for explanations, but the figures ignored him completely. If he hadn't seen them responding to their spokesman's orders, he would have thought they were deaf. The one who cut his hair followed it up by shaving the remaining stubble from his scalp, then doused the garbage can with alcohol and lit it on fire. The hair burned up with a foul stench and a cloud of oily smoke. Then the fourth man did the same with Jared's clothes. As Jared lay there, naked, bald, and shivering between the thick straps and the cold metal table, he at last felt real, soul-sickening fear. He was surrounded by madmen, and the sheer incomprehensibility of their actions was far more frightening than mere threats or weapons. He thought back to that other chamber, with the arch and skull logo covering the table. No, he realized. Not a table. An altar. Oh, gods. The symbol belonged to no religion or deity that Jared knew of, which meant that this was no ordinary religion, not even a typical Daedra cult. This was something much worse. The hooded figures ignored him then, until their spokesman returned. He still carried the knife in one hand, and had a large, leather-bound book tucked under his arm. "'I sincerely apologize for your discomfort, Mr. Tamlin,' he said to Jared, as he handed off the knife to one of his associates. He opened the book and lifted it in both hands, showing it to Jared. It looked sort of like an old canticle, but the pages were thick and sturdy, and there was no yew tree on the cover. "'We've never had such a strong response to the blood offering before.' I had to seek further guidance. Please, I... Jared caught himself, closed his eyes, took a deep breath in and out again. He had to remain calm. He had to try to understand what these people wanted. He spoke slowly and carefully. I don't understand anything that's happening. His voice only shook a little. 
The spokesman acknowledged that with a nod. I need to ask you some questions. If you are who I believe you to be, then I will be happy to tell you everything. But I must be sure. Who he believes me to be? Jared wondered what that could mean. Does he think I'm some kind of god in human form? A, a savior? A prophet? Without knowing about the man's religion, there was no way to tell. I'm going to have to understand his delusion before I can try to negotiate with him. Still, it wouldn't hurt to test the man's willingness to give a little, especially since Jared was freezing on the hard metal table. Have your people bring me a blanket, he said, and let me out of these straps. If you do that, I'll answer your questions. The spokesman smiled. Easily done. Five minutes later, Jared was sitting up and wrapped in a warm, clean blanket. Where they'd gotten it down here, he had no idea, nor did he care. He was given a mug of hot herbal tea as well, though he hadn't asked for it. The spokesman pulled up a chair in front of him and began asking his questions. They were, strangely, questions about genealogy. The man had Jared trace back as far into his family tree as he could remember, naming every cousin, every aunt and uncle, every whatever twice removed that he could think of. The man took meticulous notes, drawing Jared's family tree on a blank page in the book. Every time a new branch of the tree was completed, he showed it to Jared and made him check its accuracy. The spokesman asked about other matters of heredity as well, rare diseases, magical talent, unusual physical traits. What he did not ask about, and Jared did not tell him, was the same secret Jared had kept hidden from his co-workers on the police force, that he was a latent telepath. It wasn't that Jared had any strong feelings of loyalty to the Psy Collective, the worldwide community of people with psionic powers. Theirs was a closed, insular society, disconnected from mainstream culture, with a lot of strange ideas about family and the roles of men and women. They fervently believed in a coming war between mundanes and telepaths. They intended to win that war by breeding the strongest size they could and growing their population as fast as possible. The whole business felt cultish and more than a little creepy. Jared hadn't been raised in collective society, and when they discovered how weak his talent was, they'd had little interest in making him a part of their long-term vision. On the whole, Jared was glad of that. He found the collective to be controlling, paranoid, and borderline abusive. But the collective did care strongly about protecting size from mundanes, even size like Jared, who didn't live as part of their culture. Jared didn't want to burn any bridges with the Collective by telling their secrets to this unbalanced cultist. Hells, if Jared could find a way to reach the Collective with a message, they might even rescue him. Too bad my telepathy only works on people I'm touching. After a while, they moved down the hall to a more comfortable space, furnished with rugs and cheap but serviceable couches and chairs. An adjacent room had a twin bed, covered with several sheets and blankets. It looked like a uni student's basement apartment. Food was brought to them, roast chicken with potatoes and vegetables, and cold bottled water. Jared ate ravenously, 
suddenly aware of how hungry he was. It occurred to him that the food might be drugged, but he couldn't bring himself to care. Anyway, his interviewer was eating it too. So, Jared said, between bites of food, we've been talking for a while now. What should I call you? The spokesman smiled enigmatically. Why do you need to call me anything? Well, saying hey you has always felt a bit rude to me, Jared said. He consciously held his body in a relaxed posture, kept his tone light. Let him think the food has won me over. The spokesman chuckled. We don't use our legal names here. Security is a concern. If you need to call me anything, you may call me Brother Recludius. Brother Recludius, Jared said. Are you some kind of monastic order, then? Because that sounds better than cult. It's a bit like that, Recludius said. A bit like a fraternity, too, I suppose. A secret society, then? Jared suggested. Recludius shrugged. If you like. Jared looked down at the knife wound on his arm. It ached, but not as much as he would have expected. That blood offering, is that part of your rituals? Make him talk about his faith, he thought. People like having their beliefs validated, and it will help you understand what he wants. In answer, Recludius spared his left arm. He had a single, long, white scar across his wrist, in the same place where he had cut Jared. We have all gone through the screening. I've seen strong reactions before, but never one as strong as yours. What is it measuring? Jared asked. A number of hereditary markers, in your blood and in your aura, Recludius said. A modern genetic screening is more informative, but this way is quicker, and takes less training and equipment. Call it a pre-screening. Okay, but why? Jared persisted. You must have had some reason for... for bringing me here. Kidnapping me? What are these markers supposed to show you? I can't tell you that yet, Recludius said. He actually sounded regretful. He patted his book twice. Based on what you've told me, I think this merits further investigation. I'm going to refer your case to my superiors. If they agree with my assessment, then we'll move forward. And what does moving forward entail? Jared asked. Answering more of your questions, for one, Recludius said. There will be additional screenings, additional tests. Some of them will be uncomfortable. I can't do anything about that. But I can make your stay here more pleasant in the meantime. He gestured at the room by way of demonstration. The whole conversation was becoming surreal. More pleasant than being left in a darkened cell, having my wrist cut, being strapped down and shaved and stripped naked? That encompasses a wide, wide range of possibilities. Still, the man seemed strangely earnest. It was as if he were desperate for Jared to like him for some reason. That in itself wasn't unusual. Jared had found that people were almost always kind and helpful, especially once he got a chance to talk to them and explain his side of things. But receiving such consideration from one's kidnapper was just bizarre. If you really want to help, you could just let me go, Jared said. Recludius looked scandalized. What? No, no, not yet. Not now. He paused 
took a deep breath, then spoke again, more calmly. In the first place, no, I cannot. But more importantly, you are on the edge of an enormously important self-discovery. He leaned forward in his chair, gesturing passionately with both hands. Imagine if you knew something that could transform a person's whole life, help them to realize their greatest potential. If they achieved this potential, they would better not only their own life, but the lives of thousands, millions, even billions of others. You could not let them walk away from such a revelation. By any consistent moral principle, it would be wrong. Carefully, Jared put on an expression of thoughtful consideration. I see your point, he said. Inwardly, though, he shivered. So he does think I'm some kind of savior. Gods help me, how did I get into this mess? One more question, if I may, Jared asked. How did you identify me for this screening? What made you think I would be a good candidate? I'm assuming you don't test every person in Metamore. Would that we could, Recludia sighed. It would make things so much easier. But no, you were brought here for reasons completely unrelated to the testing. What those reasons were, I do not know. The decision was made by my superiors. He waved his hand dismissively. Usually the blood offering is a formality. Most people have few of the necessary markers. You are astonishingly fortunate to be such a close match. Recludius rose to his feet and collected Jared's plate atop his own. I'll let you get settled in for now. There are clothes for you in the bedroom. We've rigged a shower down the hall. Feel free to use it. The guards will escort you there. He smiled apologetically. I'm afraid the accommodations are still a bit primitive, but I hope you'll find them a step up. If all goes well, we'll discuss your situation on my return. Recludius went to the door, knocked three times, and waited for it to open. Two more of the hooded figures stood outside. If you need anything, feel free to ask the gods, he said. Jared didn't know what to say, so he just nodded. Recludius closed the door and left him there. Jared heard a heavy deadbolt slide into place on the other side. Once he was sure the man wasn't coming back, Jared let out a long sigh and collapsed back onto the couch. It was indeed much better than his first cell, but it was a cell just the same. And it seemed that his best chance of escaping it was to play nice with a group of religious nuts, who liked to wear heavy black robes in summer, inflicted non-consensual injuries on their kidnapped victims, thought a human skull made a nifty religious device, and counted Jared as astonishingly fortunate for being caught in the middle of their delusions. That's right, Jared, he thought wearily, as he stared up the walls of his prison. You're one lucky guy. And that's the end of Chapter 27. Come back next time, when Morgan's forensic team uncovers some new clues, and Kate and Lizzie set out to catch a killer. Thanksgiving is a time to reflect on all the things we're grateful for. I'm thankful for my fans who listen to this show and read my books, for my Patreon patrons who support my work financially, 
and for a good job that gives me the free time and flexibility to write. So let's check in on my latest writing endeavors. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 5,961 words this week, over the course of 7.75 hours, for an average writing speed of 769 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 49 days without breaking my chain. I was homesick on Monday this week, and I had Thursday and Friday off for the holiday, so I took advantage of the extra time to get some more writing done. I got almost 1,600 words done on Monday, and over 1,700 on Friday. Those are my two highest one-day word counts since September 2017. Homecoming is now at the beginning of Chapter 9, and the story stands at nearly 22,000 words and counting. Over on the Patreon feed, I finally caught up with my backlog of behind-the-episode author commentaries. These lightly edited podcast episodes are usually around 20 to 30 minutes, and they're stuffed with Easter eggs, backstory, and other behind-the-scenes info that you won't find anywhere else. The podcast is available to all of my Patreon patrons, and it comes in a personalized RSS feed, which you can plug into your iTunes or other podcatching software. To learn more, head on over to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester and make a pledge today. And if you're already a patron, thank you so much for your support. And now, the feedback. Hi, Chris. This is John Blyden. I'm a longtime listener of you, and I would love to be a Patreon participant, but you know how funds are sometimes. But, you know, I had this thought. Every time I listen to Metamore, I see myself seeing, like, a graphic novel or an adult animated dark kind of series. Have you ever thought of partnering up with anybody like Gendy or somebody from the Sci-Fi Channel to produce a uh, animated series? And keep up the great work. I love Metamorph, my favorite. Hi, John. The short answer is yes. Yes, I have thought about that. Whenever I write for Metamorph, I think about the setting in a way that's very cinematic and I think that comes through in my writing. I would love for someone to do a graphic novel or an animated series based on my work. My preferred animation style would probably be something like the Disney XD show, Star Wars Rebels, because it would give the world of Metamore some of that gritty sci-fi feel, while also allowing things like transformations and theriomorphs to not look out of place. I'd be open to something anime-inspired, too. Unfortunately, no one has been beating down my door to get the rights to Metamore City, and unless I suddenly start selling a whole lot more books, that's probably not going to change. It's fun to dream, though. Thanks for the question. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester, the fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. 
It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.